I'm Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from the Eastern Cape for our series on women in law is Professor Nomtondazo Intlama Makanya, who is a professor of public law at the Nelson Mandela School of Law at the University of Fort Hare. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Dr. Agonia. I'm very pleased to have me in the show. Prof, you're the first person that we're hosting who is currently in residence at the University of Fort Hare. But so many of our guests have had an experience or have attended the institution, as have many of our struggle stalwarts like Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, Robert Sabukwe, Oliver Tambo, to mention a few. How does it feel to work in an institution that has taught some of South Africa's great leaders? I am very uh, privileged and honored uh, to be working at Forte after the great leaders of our country and the international community as well that were groomed and bred at Forte. Uh, this honor goes back when I was still a student as well, when I aspired to go to Forte because even uh, in our time, Forte was the place to be. So I was fortunate after my trip to be admitted at Forte, but to cut my story short, now that I'm working at Forte again, the first opportunity as well, I was given at Forte as a junior after my master's, and then I left after three years. And now I'm the senior uh, in the faculty of law, and also with Forte's commitment, not just to be a university of excellence, but a university that is committed to a sustainable African university that is designed to ensure that it grows beyond its own limitations. It's a rural location in Alice, but to go beyond Africa borders, to be a global competitor in teaching, in research and engagement. So those were the aspirations of our former leaders when they were at Forte. And the other thing what makes uh, this opportunity distinct is the fact that our own school was named after former President uh, Nelson Mandela. We wanted to associate ourselves with the name so that we stand as an identity of President Mandela, of what he aspired as a school of law. The other icon as well, Dr. Oliver Tambo, we have a chair of human rights, which is also under the auspices of the Faculty of Law, which makes this position very distinct because the naming of the chair of human rights, which is the UNESCO chair, the United Nations Education, Social and Cultural Organization. The fact that the international community as well identified Forte as the place of hosting that chair in advocating a humorous education, which at the time, our democracy was still in its infancy. And today, as much as the democracy has grown, the chair still has relevance in ensuring that our constitution, our values, our principles are actually a given context where the chair is playing a lead role in rights education and in developing academic programs. Thank you. There is such an amazing heritage to the institution and 
Yet, as you say, there is also an evolutionary process and the legacy of the institutions is echoed through the achievements of its scholars, be it the greats that you've just mentioned. And it's wonderful that their um, legacy and identity is being reflected in some of the, the naming conventions at Fort Hare. Our world is changing continuously. What role do you see universities playing to develop women in particular as Africa's future leaders? You know, uh, the universities, they occupy a specialist place in our respective societies, communities, uh, the continent and the international community at large. And that place is not only for production of knowledge, but how that uh, knowledge changes the socio-economic conditions of our people, which in this instance, how do women who in the past were denied the opportunities are enabled to be put in positions of power, position of management, position of authority to ensure that there is a regeneration of leaders for the well-being of our communities? Because when you empower women, not that I'm biased because I'm a woman, but there is that humanity aspect in respect of the way in which we do things as women. As much as we have to apply the letter of the law, the letter of the law has to be infused with some values that takes into account the context within which we operate in leadership, in management, or in every structure that we serve as women. It is a matter of the universities now opening up those opportunities. And to date, it is very sad that there are very few women in senior leadership positions uh, in our universities. And out of 26 in South Africa today, I think there are two only women vice chancellors. So if an opportunity is open for women and also the women, when that opportunity is granted, they also draw comparative lessons from each other in order to share experiences on how they manage their respective portfolios. And in turn, to also transfer the skill to the upcoming women in bridging that gap between the juniors and the seniors so that we don't have this leadership vacuum that we are seeing today. As you say, you need to have some succession planning in place to prevent the vacuum from occurring and draw and educate or mentor women through the pipeline. Yes, Doc if there is a succession planning, because we have to start small. As you have read my profile, I was at UNISA. There, we had a program called uh, Growing Your Own Timber. So when we grow your own timber, you are looking at filling this void. So if we have carefully planned the programs that are designed to empower women, we will look back, because that carefully planned program as well, it does not have a tick box, what we need to do as well. We need to approach this, not women as victims of past discrimination, but we need to look at women as having the potential to lead, to manage, to do whatever is necessary in the empowering process. It's an important mind shift to be aware of. And when you change your mind, your mental model, it changes your perspective completely. And the way that you are positioned and your attitudes towards an issue, seeing it from a different perspective, that immediately alters your viewpoint and the way that you approach and, and handle situations. Prophet, 
You've had an extensive career in the legal system. Prior to your current post at Fort Hare, you were head of research in the School of Law. You acted as head of UNESCO and the Oliver Tumbo Chair of Human Rights, which we spoke about. You've been a former commissioner of the South African Judicial Services Commission. You've represented the Society of Law Teachers of Southern Africa, and you've acted as a judge of the high courts. Please, will you walk us through some of the key landmarks in your career to arrive at this point? Ah, gosh, in this journey, it was not a, a very easy journey because if there's no commitment and management of your time in an academia being a, a small environment, it is easy to drown you. Because when I started as a junior, it was on my mind back then in order to survive, because at the time there was this thing of publish or you perish. That was the term that was uh, prevalent at the time. So I took it upon myself. It was in the very first day after master's, I had the first paper accepted in the very first year. So since then, I never stopped writing to ensure that each year, at least I may have a, a publication out. Even after the doctorate, I was already an associate professor because from 2002, each year I had publication or publications out. So by the time I obtained the doctorate, then I was already excelled beyond the level of appointment because of my writing. So I never stopped. Thanks. To be able to put out a publication every year is a fantastic credit to you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, what I want to, to emphasize that I also share with my colleagues and the juniors, you know, in order to make it right this year for the following year, the reason being the publication process is taking its own time. So when you write this year for the following year, come the following year, you don't have pressure because the work that you produced last year will be published the following year. The participation as well uh, in conferences nationally and internationally, that also what sharpened my research and analytical skills because if you don't present your research to your peers and get scrutiny on the work that you do, you will struggle to get out of the bath of water because you have inboxed your thoughts you, you don't share with your peers. So that's what makes me as well to improve in, in my research writing. One other thing, when I was uh, elected to serve uh, in the Judicial Services Commission, I was actually surprised at the conference. I was sitting in front when the nominations came. Nobody even caucused me. I heard my name at the back, nominating Professor Lam. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so there was a vote. I was voted in. So the experience that I've learned in the five years I was with the JSC is quite extensive. Because in the JSC, when I joined, I was in the sifting committee of the JSC, which meant that all the uh, applications of the potential candidates were coming uh, to us first, where we had to sift and shortlist the candidates for appointment. So it entails an extensive scrutiny of each candidate when we present. And on top of that, I had to present the reports as well uh, to the society which I was representing, because the academic voice, the identity of the academia has to be heard in the JSC. And also the academia has to know what is happening in the JSC, and also being a one representative out of the 23 uh, commissioners, 
because that is a specialist uh, position because it is a constitutionalized position. It is inscribed in the constitution in section 178 1G that uh, one teacher of law, which makes it uh, quite a milestone that uh, all the universities of uh, Southern Africa community would have confidence in me that I would go and represent them. I was also nominated for the electoral court position. So I had to leave the position after five years, where I was again, after the October interviews uh, last year, I was appointed by President uh, Ramaphosa to serve as a member of the electoral court. We deal with electoral issues. Those uh, are the thorny subject of our democracy. The other experience as well is to serve as an active judge of the high court. And the first time I acted was it was an issue. And now the minister has approved my uh, appointment to act at the Makanda High Court in Grahamstown. So that experience as well, you know, as a pure academic, I don't have a practical experience, but being in court, I felt that I, I was a combo, a combo in the sense that I'm the prosecutor, I'm the defense, I'm the accused, I'm the victim, and still, a judge. So that actually helped me to translate that theory of law that I have into practice. Now, I'm thrown into the lion's den without this practical experience, which it helped me to deal with those key issues in criminal law and civil litigation. It was challenging. It was empowering me. I had the mentors of the senior judges as well. When I don't understand something, I would quickly go to the senior judge and ask about this matter. But they allow you to, to grow on your own, which it gives you space as well to ensure that when you deal with a case, because it's a matter of life and death, because there's someone here and there's you, you are between the life and death of the person. So you make sure that when you interpret the law and apply it, you apply it properly without compromising the fairness of the tribe itself. Those are incredible experiences. They all accumulate and allow you to take your knowledge and apply it into the field. And the way that you express this wearing multiple hats from victim to prosecutor to defense to to judge is, is really quite encompassing. I want to ask you about your research Specifically, it is in constitutional law, and there is an emphasis on human rights and customary law with a focus on socio-economic rights, judiciary, gender equality, women's rights, traditional leadership and governance. And the current focus is on legal uh, pluralism and the future of human rights in judicial reasoning. I have to say, in my experience, I don't think there's ever been a better time to be a woman. If I think back a hundred years ago, we didn't have any of the rights that we have today. So thinking about your experience and the recent past, in your opinion, what would you say have been some of the important equality gains that women have attained? Let me limit my response to 1994. It is when uh, the opportunities for women came up because of the new constitutional dispensation. Because if it was not for the new dispensation, we could have been crying foul much more than it was in the past. As much as women in the past played a fundamental role as evidence as well by women of 1956, but women of today 
still have that special role because those experiences of 1956, they continue to manifest themselves today in the sense that, for example, being the only woman uh, a professor in our faculty, I think there's something that I also uh, allowed to happen. For instance, when we have a tea or gathering, as a woman, I'm still expected to make tea for my junior colleagues, uh, main colleagues. <laughs> the junior male colleagues and to share one experience one lady as well came to the office looking for professor Antlam. when she was brought into the office and then i asked her what would i help her with requesting her to sit down then she looked at me and asked whether i was taking her serious because she's looking for professor Antlam. <laughs> so i had to tell no professor Antlam is me please lady that was her please lady I'm not here to joke. I'm looking for Professor Antlam. <laughs> so I, I, I had to, <laughs> to be diplomatic and then, oh, Professor Antlam is me. I even took out my staff card to show that Professor Antlam is me. It's, it's only when uh, she was shocked and sat down then I, and apologized. But I can see that for the purpose of ensuring an equity uh, society, as I've said, the policy framework in our institutions, at times it looks progressive. But the manner in which those policies are implemented, they leave so much to be desired in the sense that look at the judiciary. In this latest interview of the chief justice, the judiciary does not have a gender policy. Whilst it stands at the height of being an insurer or an arbiter of equity, but the judiciary itself does not have a gender policy. So in order to empower and ensure women there has to be an environment that is conducive for women to perform. And when women perform and also have a, a mentors that will guide them, or as well, they need to be proactive. Women themselves, they need to be proactive and identify people whom they can be of assistance in negotiating and navigating their growing up as leaders of tomorrow. Prof. Inklama Mankanya, you've spoken about the issue of policy development, of frameworks from an institutional perspective, but you also gave us some very real examples of gender stereotyping, where men see women in a certain way, and sometimes women see women in a certain way. The view of a professor as a man, the view of, well, the woman in the room is the one that's going to make the tea and the coffee. And I often think that those cultural pieces are more challenging than policy frameworks to overcome. Yes, it is, because they are very entrenched, they are deeply entrenched. Hence, earlier on, we talked about uh, reorientation. Those cultural practices, we know that, okay, it's fine, as much as uh, we have a 50-50, but that 50-50 is interpreted as an absolute 50-50 without a justified limitation on how to apply and interpret the application of the 50-50 principle. So in order for us to deal with those stereotypes, in a customer law context, customer law is a living law. It is evolving with our everyday living. So women should not be viewed through the lens of the men, of practices that uh, undermine their equal worth and, and equal being. Because if the Ubuntu principle, which is couched in customer law terms, 
That principle, as much as it is not included in our constitution as a value, it indirectly promotes the value and the principle of equality, wherein people, irrespective of genders, because of their humanity, because of their uh, dignity, they are of equal status. There's so much of rice education that needs to be undertaken. On the other hand, there's an aspect that uh, we tend to leave behind, that responsibility part, because the responsibility part is intertwined with the right itself, because you don't claim a right. On the other hand, you don't have a responsibility to ensure that you respect the right of the other person. So when we do or advocate for the right education, this must be intertwined not to, to advocate for the right and leaving behind the responsibility part. Look at the level of gender-based violence. Even in our own institutions of learning, look at our students. These are post-1994 students that we are teaching, but look at what is happening with them at, the, at these campuses. We have cases every day. They cause us headaches. The students themselves were in, in campuses who have incidents of rape. Look at our situation last year at Fortier where our own student, law student, was killed by her boyfriend. It is actually very stressing uh, to be faced with those instances. And you, you begin to wonder as to what type of society, society are we building? So in the context of let's do away with these entrenched cultural practices that seeks to promote domination. Those points are, are really poignant. They are incredibly moving. They are very real of what society is experiencing. And the university is a, is a microcosm of society. But Prof, moving ahead, what types of interventions do you think we could put in place to, to create a more egalitarian society, to get the principles of Ubuntu as lived principles and promote gender equality? If we look at it uh, now, though, for example, there's more access to institutions of higher learning uh, for women. The intake is much higher than it was in the place uh, in the past. So if we have a higher number of female students getting into institutions of higher learning, but the challenge that we have after graduation, where do they go to? If we identify those potential ones whom we can breed for further development, because they live and hold junior positions, and those that are within the system as well, because our gender differences, of course, they speak volume because we look after kids, we look after husbands, we look after families. There's so much that we as women. So we need institutions that are gender sensitive to women's issues. So we need to strike a balance in ensuring that we don't overburden women. We ensure that they publish, they research, they teach as well, so that we have an end product of women that has these various skills that will not be questionable tomorrow when the opportunity comes for further leadership. Hi, I'm Zonke Dikana, a South African Afro-Soul musician, songwriter, and producer. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Today, we're talking to Professor Nomtandazo Ntlama Makanya, 
who is a professor of public law from the University of Fort Hare in the Eastern Cape, South Africa. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Prof, we've spoken about the work that you do, the work that you've done, the, let's say, the, the institution of law, the, the principles of law, and how it is applied or, or not applied in, in policies as well as um, gender equality challenges. But you had um, a very different life before going into the law. Can you tell us about your, your sporting career? That one goes back way before 1994 in Siskai. But let me cut it short to 1994. It was in 1994 when the White and Black Federations matched. I was one of the four players in my region to play in the regional team. From then, I never looked back. Even before 94, I was a high-flying netballer and athlete. When I went to Forte, I focused on netball because of my other commitments. So I couldn't take athletics and netball together. So one had to suffer. And when I was at Forte as well, I was selected for the SA University's team. Then from that team, I was invited to take part uh, in the National Seniors Netball Trials, where I was elected again. Then from then, I played for the national side up until uh, 2002, after the Commonwealth Games in Manchester. But they were in competition with work, and I had just started working. And my netball at national level had to suffer. Then I played up until 2004, uh, the potential uh, netball. But even that one, I had to give it up after the brain tumor. Sorry, you, you said you had a brain tumor. Yes, I had a brain tumor operation in 2004, December. Gosh. So for four months, for four months, I, I was home <laughs> on leave. Even the doctor, I registered for it after recovering from the brain tumor. Wow. <laughs> yes, doc. That, that, is, that's, that is the story. At times, I'm reluctant to share, but I, I do share because this is what happened from netball and become a senior academic. I'm going to act as a, as a judge. So even then, when I was student playing netball for South Africa, I was in leadership positions, which when I shared uh, with my students, as a law student, you lead in whatever way, because law, you become a leader. Whether you are in sport society or debating society or religious or, or resident society, if you are in law, you lead. So. Let us not make our unfortunate situations define our identities. Particularly now, with the youth month, the youth of today must soldier on despite the challenges of drugs that we are faced with, unemployment as well. But today, let us try and soldier on and ensure that we take the baton that was founded by our leaders to ensure that in our situations, we become better persons. Nobody can tell that I had a serious brain tumor. And my daughter said, oh, don't worry. We'll break the bone and put it back. It was scary. It's either you die on the table or if you don't die, you will not be okay. But, oh, okay, but let the operation be performed. But here I am today. That unfortunate situation did not define who I am. And with the parents as well passing on in 1994, in the first year as well, of university, both of them. My father passed in April, my mother followed in June. So we're left devastated with my elder sister who has also since passed on after we were about to start working. And then she also followed the parents. 
So we are soldiering on to ensure that our backgrounds does not define who we are or what we would achieve in the future. You have an incredible sense of, of strength and resilience about you. But Prof, one of the questions that I ask all my guests on this show is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. Some people speak about a particular person in their life. Others talk about faith or values. Can you please share with us from your perspective, what some of the key drivers of success have been for you? There's one thing that motivated me from an early age. Because back then, if you were good in sport, there was this perception that uh, you are not good in your books. But it was always within me that as much as I excel in sport, I must do likewise in my books as well. That what kept me going to ensure that I don't fail that inner ambition. And what I think, having grown up as well in a separate family, if I put it that way, because my, my parents were separated, so we grew up with a maternal family. My uncles and my aunts were the source of strength with my mother. Because I wanted to go to school and ensure that the experience that I had uh, with my parents I don't experience it. So I would study very hard to ensure my uh, success. To an extent, here at the village, there was a, a Mr. Madigani who was a building contractor. And at the time, uh, he had a Mercedes-Benz. And because uh, our home is next to the road, I would see that Mercedes-Benz coming there. And I would say, ah, you know, when I'm old, I'm going to buy myself that car. So. It kept me going, but on the other hand, the family values my grandmother instilled in us, and my grandmother was praying for us. She instilled in us to ensure that even if you do fall, make sure that you brush yourself and move forward. Don't fall and die where you have fallen. Wake up and pick yourself, get your composure, and move forward. So that's what helped me. As I'm saying, I failed Madrid. When I share this with my students, it is as if, no, prof, not when you are this clever, when I'm prof, what do you, you are so clever. Mm-hmm. I failed metric. I repeated metric. I had a break year after metric. Even at 40, I didn't want to study law because I studied law by default. I wanted to do the degree in sport that was going to channel me to schools where I had an interest with learners. So when I went to Forte, the only opening was in law, the department was full. And I couldn't stay for another year at home. So I did law. But when I wrote the mid exams in June, I felt, ah, oh, man, this is what I want. I like that analysis of cases and how this case apply in this context. I like this thing. So I developed an interest and it grew. But that teaching in me, you didn't run away from me because immediately, I think in third year, I became a tutor to teach other learners. Then fortunately for me, I got to the classroom through the back door, if I put it that way, because I was appointed as junior now to teach at university, not at the school where I wanted. It sounds like there's such a conversion of environmental factors and influences which have allowed you to draw on aspects that you you thought you wanted to do, but it took you in a different route. But it still allowed you to have, for instance, um, being a teacher, but not in sport, in law, uh, not at a school, at a university. 
Can you tell us about some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up? Growing up, the devastating thing was my parents separating. And when they passed on as well, I was the killer punch. But of importance is that the elder sister whom we were left with had just started working and she sacrificed her life for us to get through university. And I got a scholarship after the LLB, which was postgraduate at the time. Immediately after the master's, I got my first job and I never looked back. And the great milestone was when I obtained that LLD degree after this major operation. When I got that LLD degree, it actually opened so many doors. I soon realized that in the academia, there is no concept of I have arrived. No, you keep on learning every day. You discover new areas of research. You discover new areas of further investigation. And you need to upskill yourself. You need to train yourself. You need to transfer the knowledge to others as well. Now that I'm a full professor, it says nothing in the academia if I don't impact that status to other uh, colleagues that are still coming after me. So the key issue was when that LD was conferred on me and opened up these many opportunities, which I've already uh, spoken about. And I'm really grateful. Your education has played a tremendous role in your career and your view of never giving up, of redoing things if you fail. So what? Brush yourself off, start again and move ahead. You haven't let anything hold you back. I wanted to ask you about some of the women in your life that have been important role models or influences. Uh, Doc, to be very honest, I have always been around men. Other than uh, the immediate family members, I've always been around men because my uncles were, were also very hard on me. Because I had three uncles. You won't understand that even today I'm still able to milk the cows. Something that I've learned when I was growing up, I'm still able to milk the cows. So I've been around men because when I joined Forte as, as an academia, I had two senior colleagues then whom way of assistance in molding me and becoming the person I am. So the two have, have been very instrumental uh, in my career. I do have friends, uh, female friends, Dr. Lubisi, uh, Professor Janet uh, as well, who we talk and share this experience and this and that, or what needs uh, to be done, but we are a circle of friends within. We ask each other. So as I've mentioned, that as women in leadership, particularly in law, because law is a, is a specialist area and it is quite complex. So as women in law, because not many of us as well get to the level where we are today. It is important that we share experience with comparative lessons from each other so that those experiences, we try and apply them in our own contexts. The networking aspect is incredibly important and thinking about the fact that you've had more, let's say, uh, male role models and mentors in your life. When we think of the environment that we're in, a few years back, there were only men in leadership roles. Women didn't occupy those positions. Mm. Lastly, as we close out today's conversation in commemoration of Youth Month, please can you share a few words of inspiration that you'd like to pass on to girls and women in the continent who are listening to us? 
women in Africa, girls in Africa, boys in Africa, men in Africa. We are living in a contemporary context where we are faced with many ills. As much as there are opportunities, those opportunities seem to be clouded by these ills that cloud the good that is coming out of Africa. Africa is a good place to be. Africa is a good place for growth of women to advance the socioeconomic economic We just came out of the Africa month. So it speaks volume about how far we have progressed as Africa from 1963. Now in the South African context, we are getting to the youth months from 1976. But from 1994, there are gains that we have achieved for the South African youth. But those gains as well are clouded by these many ills such as youth unemployment. But in going forward, despite all these challenges, let us not allow the elephant or the crocodile to bite the pieces of what we have. I'm using this idiom of a crocodile. It is an idiom that talks to these challenges. So we need, as the youth of today, as the youth of tomorrow, to take on the button, the beta, and try and walk in the footprints of our leaders have set ourselves for. I've just mentioned that there are more female students now that are getting to the university as opposed to the past. Let us use that opportunity to ensure that women that get into institutions of higher learning, they don't just go there and study. They get there and live with their degrees and become leaders in their communities. When you lead in your community, you are going to lead in your workplace environment. When you lead in your workplace environment, you are going to lead in your province up until the country. It's just a matter of setting ourselves goals that we need to achieve. Thank you very much for that message and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Gugolia. I really appreciate the time. I don't have words. I feel very honored and privileged to be part of this show. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining in our series on a woman in law. You have been listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Nomtandazo Nklama Makanya, who is a professor of public law from the University of Fort Hare in the Eastern Cape, South Africa. 